Welcome to The Whole Truth, where two wholesalers help financial professionals build great practices and thrive in a rapidly changing industry. We'll bring you the stories and voices from those on the front lines of this change, and we'll have some fun along the way. We're building a community of financial professionals who are growing, forward-thinking, and want to get better. Thanks for listening and contributing to the discussion. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. And welcome, everybody, to The Whole Truth. Steve here. And I am Kurt Dupuy. First episode of the year, New Year 2024. Typically, we would have this be our clip show. That's coming next, but we actually wanted to have an interview come out, first episode of the year, that we thought was particularly good. Our guest today was Michael Futterman. Michael was head of practice management at a very large asset manager. He has his own consulting firm right now, which is Type 2 Consulting. He's a coach. He's a speaker. And man, he was just, you know, in my mind, a heck of an interview. He's so polished. He has kind of been in this practice consulting game for a while. You can tell. His name first came up when we uh, got certified for Colby a couple of years ago, because that's something that his prior firm was utilizing. Um, And he was very well known in the Colby circles. And I I just love his concept of type two fun. I think that's the name of of his consultancy because it's, it's all about doing the hard things, like the the hard work that you appreciate and kind of like get self-gratification through in the long run, um, like running a marathon, like any, anything that's hard, anything that takes time, effort, training, and is kind of framing it that way, I, th- I think is is a unique perspective. How do you get people to act? And that's what we're always trying to do as consultants to financial advisors is, hey, you want to do these things. We know you want to do these things. Now we actually have to help you to, to, to take action. Now we have to help you to move, to take those steps. And um, I think it's a really creative and thoughtful way to coach people to focus on change. Well, type two fun is the enemy of a problem that we run into often, which is just complacency. Yes. And so like it's it's the antithesis of a complacency, something that we battle all the time. And we know you know, management that listens to, to the show as well, like that, that's a common problem. We should not be striving for comfort. It, it should be the opposite. Yeah. And there's a vision around it too. You know, when you run a marathon, you're like, okay, I just, I want to complete this. And sometimes we, we focus just on the little tasks we have to do. And then you could easily say, well, I don't want to do that. But if you have a vision, okay, this is where I want this business to be. If you have that vision, then, you know, the, the steps become, even if they're challenging, you're like, no, no, no I'm going to, I'm going to do this today. I better. Did you know that I ran a marathon? I did not know that. I ran a half and my thought I thought to myself, how in the world do people do two times this amount of running? That's, that was my half mile. And I did it pretty well. Like I didn't walk at all during the entire thing. If you've done a whole, I give you great credit because that's no joke. I made the mistake of making friends with some runners when I had moved to Pittsburgh. So I moved to Pittsburgh in 08 and I ran the Pittsburgh Marathon in 2010. And met a group of runners um, and just started training. I mean, I'm, an, I'm an extrovert. So you give me people and I'm, I'm pretty much down for anything. But like bringing it back to kind of this type two fun, I had for some reason really attached to the training of this marathon to a brother that I had lost. So when I finished the marathon, I was physically exhausted, but all of these emotions also just rushed over. Like I just completely lost it. I like really just collapsed wow. right there at the end. So a flood of sensations and emotions, but that was my type two fun. Like the work was hard, but enjoyable, but I did it. Like something I never thought I would do just to prove to myself that I could. This type two fun thing really, really makes sense to me because I associate it with that 
moment. That's an awesome story and a nice lead in to Mr. Futterman. So we're going to jump into that interview with Michael Futterman. And welcome back. We're going to have a conversation with Michael Futterman today. Michael, we always feel like people do a better job of kind of telling their story and their background better than us just reading some CV somewhere. So could you kind of start by telling us a little bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, let me start by just saying thanks to both of you for having me on. It's been exciting to get to know both of you as we've started this process. I'm a coach. I'm a EQ enthusiast. I'm a type two fun addict, and I'm sure that we'll get into some of those things as we go along. I've spent uh, 20 plus years in financial services. I started with UBS Financial Services as one of the practice management leads. I then later went to Allianz Global Investors and I originated their learning and development function. And then I left Allianz Global Investors to join Janus Henderson. At the time, they were Janus. And I headed up their Janus Labs team for a few years. And now uh, I've started my own coaching and consulting practice doing that independently. Before being involved in financial services, I was an Outward Bound instructor, uh, and I really have a passion for human change and development, and that kind of guides a lot of the stuff that mm. I do on a day-to-day basis. Well, I, I think w- one of the first recollections I have of your name is when Steve and I got certified in Colby a few years ago, and I think that's one of the things that like just working out on the field, your name and Janice Labs and the quality of, of what the, the work you were doing there were, were coming up, so reputation precedes you there. So why did you decide and kind of what went into the thinking of breaking out and starting your own firm? Yeah, it's a good question. And I appreciate that. I'm flattered to to hear that, uh, you know, the association with what we were doing at Janus Labs and, and the work that we did with Colby, you know, people thought highly of it. I think that uh, the work that all of these firms are doing around practice management and coaching is great. So so none of what I'm about to say is is a dig at them. Starting my own firm seemed like the best way to work with my clients in a progressive way that wasn't confined by some of the things that asset managers are focused on. And and within a wirehouse model, so when I was at UBS, you're often seen as an agent of the firm. Mm. And so there's a a certain level of cautious trust. I'll put that in the best possible light. (laughs) Um, And at an asset manager, it's always in the interest of a sale of the product. And that totally makes sense, right? We have to find a way to differentiate in the asset management world right, to, to sell the products. But as an independent, the work really speaks for itself. So I am the product and the work that I do with the client. So it eliminates that cloudiness around whether or not a client wants to work with me directly. And that's, that's really what kind of drove my decision-making around starting my own company. Boy, does that resonate with us. Uh, it's been amazing how, I don't want to say easy because it sounds like we're kind of blow, pumping our chest out, but how easy it's been to differentiate you know, our what we call business consulting offering by not being product focused. It's just, if you just don't do that, the way that you come across is entirely different than everybody else, which should, should seem like something that's obvious, but uh, you know, in the world of sales, it's not. So I want to spend some a, a minute here on on your time at, at Janus. When you look at Janus Labs relative to the, what other asset managers were doing, was it very similar or did you find that you guys really were doing some differentiated next level type things? What we did at Janus Labs, it's always in the interest of developing a relationship. What yep. I focused on at Janus was on two main fronts. The first front was helping our sales team with the relationships that they develop with clients and prospects by providing them with content and training on that content. And that may be 
a little bit of what was different there. I don't I can't speak with other asset managers about what they're doing with their sales team. But I know that one of the things that my partners and I tried to do at Janice Henderson was develop that sales expertise around using the content and approach that that I use as a what I what I describe as a coachultant. And I'll get into that <laughs> in a minute. The second area of what we focused on was really working directly with the clients of the firm to bring these ideas and material to support them in growing their business or managing their team more effectively. So it was either around client acquisition or it was around what we would describe as practice management, team development, or, or health and wellness of, of an individual. So I'll go back to this idea of coaching. So if we break that down, it's coaching and consulting. Consulting is providing expertise in a specific area. So that could be like I said, client acquisition or team development or client service, marketing, leadership. These are ways for us to say, like, here are the best practices. You should segment your book of business. You should have, you know, if you use Rob Knapp's model of Supernova, you have 13 touch points a year, whatever it is, like, here's the research and this is what you should be doing. Another way to think about that is what are you trying to do? By comparison, the coaching piece is really around helping people think through how and why they are doing the thing. So it's the nuances of your particular culture, the background of your firm, the focus that you have. And really, the coaching is blending those things together. So I might start by asking more coaching questions. So things like, what's not happening that you want to see happening in your business? What have you done to create that outcome so far? What do you feel is getting in your way of achieving that thing? And then as we learn more about their answers to that question, I'll ask questions that are more consulting questions. Like I'll say, here's how you can approach segmentation. Have you thought about doing it that way? Or I've seen other advisors use these marketing tools or these approaches. Uh, Have you done that? So the blend of these two things together, it's the helping the advisor think about why am I doing this thing? Does it make sense for me? But then also how do we get this done and what are we trying to get done? That's the consulting part. So let's get into some of these concepts. One that seems awfully important to you is this concept of type two fun. I think your firm actually is called type two consulting. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's type two fun consulting and you spell it all out. And people often, probably the number, there's two questions people ask is, is it fund with a D or fun <laughs> with an N? And the answer is it's fun with an N, right? Yep. I'm, I'm talking about things that are fun to do. And then the other question they ask about is, does this have anything to do with diabetes? And the answer is no. <laughs> um, it has nothing to do with diabetes. So what is type two fun? Really put as simply as possible, it's the hard stuff that we do intentionally. And we do it because we know it's going to be worth it. So what goes into that category? It's running marathons. It's climbing mountains. It's uh, going backcountry skiing. It's uh, For advisors, it might be changing firms or forming a team. For parents, it might be taking your kids to Disney. <laughs> uh, those are things that we do. They're challenging while we do it. We might look back while we're doing it uh, or, or look at ourselves while we're doing it and say, why did I ever agree to do this thing? But when we get to the other side, we're able to look back and say, yeah, that was worth it. It was important for me to do that. So type two fund's important for a number of different reasons. So first is biologically. There's a push and pull for humans to both conserve energy and also exert control over our environment. So type two fun, when we engage in things that are challenging, you know, there's no bear that looks at another bear and says, you know what we should do? We should go climb that mountain. We should see who can do it faster and we can do it better. This is a uniquely human thing. We want 
to achieve. But at the same time, we also want to conserve energy. And that'll come up a little bit later in the description. So first is there's this biological pull. The second thing about type 2 fun, why it's important, is because business changes, whether it's compressed fees or client expectations of a team or generational wealth transfer. There's always going to be change in whatever business we're in. And being able to muster the motivation to respond to it is going to be really important. And so in, in co-chulting, what I do, this is related to what do we need to do in order to achieve the objectives that we have or the goals that we have for ourselves. So there's biological push. There's always going to be change. The third piece is related back to our need to uh, exert control over the environment. Most advisors that get into the business want to feel a sense of personal accomplishment. And whether that's a, a wellness component of doing hard things like it is good for my brain to learn new stuff, or if it's just outcomes for your business. And I'll do a little thought experiment with you guys in the audience. I want you to think about the things that you did in the last month that were easy but pleasurable. So these are things that you might have purchased or the cocktails you drank or the golf you played. And I just want you to think about those things. Think about how often you don't have to tell me what they are, but just think about them and how they made you feel. And now, in contrast, I want you to think about the hardest thing that you did intentionally. Maybe it was something as simple as just making sure that the laundry got folded. For me, I'm good at getting the laundry into the laundry machine and into the dryer, but then once it's in the once it needs to be folded, this is where I really need to exert myself. So maybe it was something like that. Maybe it was pushing yourself to go to the gym. There was an advisor that I talked to the other week, and uh, he was saying that going to the office when they could easily work from home was something that was type two fun for them, that was sort of that exertion piece. So now when you think about those two things, the things that were really easy but pleasurable, and the things that you did that were hard, which one gives you more pride? And I'll ask you, like, was it the hard stuff or was it the easy stuff? The hard stuff, easily. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Of course, right? Yeah. It's the hard stuff, right? We want to be proud. We don't want to be arrogant. There are lots of us who are arrogant. Well, we want to be proud of what we accomplish. And we've done that since we were kids. Think about the time, if you have kids, where they say, hey, look at me, dad, or look at me, mom. People wouldn't run triathlons if they didn't get to brag about it. <laughs> if you weren't allowed to talk about it afterwards, nobody would do it. <laughs> so why this becomes important is by doing hard things, why this becomes important for every business owner, for every human on the planet, is we build up resilience because we learn about trying hard and straining ourselves to do something. We develop deeper reservoirs of dopamine, which is directly related to motivation and actions that we take. And we ultimately improve our mental health when we compare it to always doing the easy thing. There are so many things in our environment that are easy to do. You can order food with the press of a button. You have a thousand shows that you can watch on Netflix, and we find ourselves saying there's nothing to watch on television. By challenging ourselves to push the limit, we become proud, we become more resilient, we learn new things, and generally that's better for our mental health, and ultimately it leads to better business outcomes. Boy, does this resonate with me on like so many different levels, and I'm, I'm now going to ask you a question. Okay, so this concept, how do you use it when working with financial professionals? I mentioned that I used to be an Outward Bound instructor. And one of the things that I would do, if those of you who don't know what Outward Bound is, it's an organization that's been around for more than 50 years, and they basically take people out into the wilderness to help them challenge themselves and learn more about themselves. And I was an instructor for them. And one of the things that we would do is we would go rock climbing. And for some people, rock climbing 
just putting the harness on is going to be super frightening for them. And for other people, nothing less than reaching the top of the, of the climb is going to be conceived as success. So what I had to do and what I do with my clients today is kind of examine what is going to push you out of your comfort zone, but not so far out of your comfort zone that you're going to be panicked. We would get people that would get harnessed up and climb five feet off the ground or even three feet off the ground. They could literally almost step down off of where they were and they would be frozen. They would be panicked. So one of the key things in type two fun is that we have to understand what is a meaningful amount of change that you are willing to engage in that is not going to send you into panic. That's the first step in starting to understand that. So talking with my clients, helping them to understand what would be a meaningful amount of change, what is going to get in the way of your success. I don't see the problem sets being tremendously different. Mm -hmm. You've got uh, business objectives that people want to meet, and that may change from firm to firm. So some firms might be dealing with a succession plan, or some firms might be dealing with creating a team. In this industry, you're going to find that those kind of problem sets show up over and over. Right. What is different each time is the skill and the capability of the team that I'm working with. So there are some advisors and some people in this business that are that are much more self-aware and willing to change. And then I'm sure as you guys have seen, there are ones that are a bit more stubborn. Yep. I think it's probably the most PC way to say it. So this is where coach helping becomes important. I can share what I do, segment this, differentiate this way, be a better team leader. But how you do that is going to be designed around the client and where they are. So we want to push hard enough but not too hard. Another way to think about it is the batting cage. I've, I haven't swung a bat since Little League. You put me in a batting cage, I'm looking for the slowest pitch. But there are other people that, you know, they've been swinging a bat for a long time. They're going to be able to withstand the pressure of that major league sort of speed in the batting cage. We want to find that right area. I'm totally stealing Coach Schulting because that's how I've, we've asked people, like, what is coaching? What is consulting? What's the difference? You yeah. describe it very beautifully, but also Thank you. combining them as a concept. Well, what I find, let me let me break in on that. Yeah. If I just sit there and, you know, pure coaching is just asking questions. Right. Right. If you go and look up coaching or you look at the ICF model or these other models, they say, don't ever tell your client what to do. Yeah. Don't ever offer a solution. And I think that dogmatically that doesn't work. I, I, if I sit and I've had this experience where I sit with an advisor and I keep asking them, I learned this earlier in my career, fortunately, if you just keep asking questions and you don't provide them with any options or solutions, they're going to get tired of you pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and without the tactical ideas to round that out, then it's, you're just a psychologist, right? <laughs> right. You talk about using discomfort as a powerful motivator. And so I'm, I'm imagine, so back to asking questions, I'm just imagining you asking a question and then just pausing in awkward, discomfortable silence for half an hour before they respond. Like, is that what we're talking about here or something else? <laughs> so I, I got a, I got a quick story about that. I had an advisor that I was working with out in California and we were talking about client experience events. They said, well, I do a lot of client experience events. Let me tell you what I'm doing. And do you think it's a good idea? And so we went through and he described a couple of them. And I said, so are, are you able to work with clients and get 
you know, introductions? Are you using these as, as uh, prospecting events? Are you using these as just appreciation events? How are you using them? And they said, well, I'd love to get more prospects, but the events are too big. So I'm unable to, I said, well, do you have any smaller events? Do you ever do anything smaller? And they said, oh yeah, well, I do this thing where I bring in our chief economist of the firm. So this guy was working at a wirehouse. I'm not going to tell you which one, but it was a big chief economist. You know the name of the person. And I said, do you think it's a good idea? Do you think that's a good prospecting event for me to have the chief economist come in? And I said, I don't know. Do your clients want to hear from a chief economist? And then I shut up. And they kind of looked at me. You know the RCA, the dog that cocks its head when it hears like a oh. <laughs> high-pitched noise? Yeah. That was the look on the guy's face. He had never considered, and that's part of the coaching job yeah. is to ask questions and provoke thinking Thought. that's yeah. lateral. So, so I love those moments where I love those coaching moments where I can ask the question and the client either says, that's a great question. Cause that means to me, like they haven't thought about it or they've only been thinking about it in one way and then waiting for them to come up with a solution or saying, okay, so let's, let's brainstorm what are some solutions and letting them brainstorm and then letting them sit with that discomfort's very, very important. And there's powerful things with discomfort and there's also really powerful things with positive motivation. So I love both of them. Do you coach, uh, financial professionals to do that with their team, right? Because I can imagine saying applying discomfort to make my team motivated to change in certain ways would be beneficial. I could also see that ended up being where they hate you. So I think very often that the person who's providing that discomfort, they can be inexpert in that. Yeah. And so like, like we've got these, this is a business that has big egos in it. Yeah. And so the advisor who started as an entrepreneur and built their business and they feel a real sense of ownership and like, I did it this way, so why can't you do it that way? And they feel that it's their way to do things and we can get into some details about that. That often can be seen as being difficult or being kind of a jerk in the way that they do it. So my job as the coach is to help both the immediate client, if that's an individual, see that there's another way to think about things through that intentional discomfort, but also to help them bring that learning to the way that they manage their team. And there's, you know, there's varying levels of success with that. So I want to go back to the, to the negative motivation. So, so the science behind this uh, and I'm taking this from uh, research that Andrew Huberman and some of the people that he's had on his podcast uh, have talked about is positive motivation. So, you know, praise and accolades and, and working towards things that are great that we want to do. Positive motivation is great. So like when we're excited to do something, do the thing, then we don't need to be hyped up as much. There's still benefit in doing it. So you don't need to sort of get me excited about going out and going skiing or going for a bike ride or, or anything like that. What science says is that for things that you're motivated to do, five minutes of visualizing the outcome and the feeling of doing the thing is very helpful in getting started in motivation for that activity. Mm. The challenge in terms of type two fun is when you're not motivated to do the thing. So this is where negative or discomfort can be a very powerful motivator. So let's say it's doing the laundry or prospecting calls is a great one. I 
really, even, even though I know I need to do it in my business, it's really challenging sometimes to get motivated to pick up the phone or write 10 more emails and try and get out to people and, and introduce myself. So in those cases, visualizing the outcome is not going to be as helpful as visualizing failure. Mm. So when you're not motivated, really spending one to five minutes concentrating hard on the consequences of not doing the thing. How are you going to feel? What will not happen if you, if you fail to do this thing? So I won't grow my business. I won't reach more clients. Um, maybe what will happen, maybe you will start losing clients. You won't have as much revenue. There's a lot of evidence to show that by thinking about that thing, it can get you motivated to actually start to take action. I heard you on a podcast and you mentioned something along the lines of, you know, it's really good for financial professionals to examine their beliefs because often they're focusing on things that in the grand scheme of things don't matter that much. Is that something that you see happen a lot in the industry? Absolutely. And it relates right back to that whole ego thing that we all have. I don't want to single financial professionals out as any different than other human beings on the planet. One of the things that comes up, and in particular for financial professionals, is that time comes up as a consistent challenge. So this idea about beliefs relates back to how am I going to be able to spend the time on things that matter? And that becomes really important. So when we see something happening, we create meaning out of that thing. And it's almost always from incomplete data. And I'll give you a quick example. I was speaking with an advisor uh, who had over time increased the income of one of his partners. And this partner was not bringing in business. They were not a rainmaker. And they were really concerned about, you know, I've set this precedent this person has increased their revenue or increased their income because I've shared more production with them. And I don't know that I'm going to be able to keep doing this. They haven't brought in any clients. And I said, that's interesting. Tell me about your business overall. And they said, well, my business has grown. We've brought in $150 million over the last two and a half years, but I haven't really seen a lot of that income. And I said, let's break this down for a minute. You brought in $150 million in AUM, but you're telling me that you haven't seen a lot of the increase in, in production from that? I said, tell me what else is going on in your business. <laughs> and they have somebody who's a retiring, uh, they're paying out a retiring FA. They might have had some other expenses. I said, so, so let's step back from this for a moment. You're basing this belief in sort of an unsustainable business model with your partner because their income has increased and yours has not to the degree that you would expect it to with 150 million coming in the door. I said, how are you able to go out and bring in 150 million in revenue? And what it really boiled down to is this other partner was the catalyst in allowing them to grow their business. They would have never been able to be spending the time on the street sourcing and prospecting that $150 million without the back office support from this other advisor. And so when we went through this thought experiment, they very quickly realized that they're like, you know what? I'm so close to the business on a day-to-day -day basis that this perspective is super valuable. Mm. 
is being able to step back is often really challenging when it comes to examining your beliefs is that day to day, it's almost like, um, you know, you come in and you expect certain things to be a certain way. But if your furniture is rearranged when you come into the office, <laughs> it's going to make a huge impact on you. Like you can probably walk into your office with your eyes closed almost and sit down in the chair without having to look for anything. But that's because you become accustomed. It becomes part of the wallpaper, so to speak. And so helping clients to step back is important. So the point is not whether the activity that is going on is valid or not. You have to examine, is it worth my time and energy to spend on this thing? And am I operating from a full set of data in order to make those decisions? The bottom line, I think, is that people need to step back and say, even though I believe this, I want to examine, do I have the data to support that? Or is it my feelings that are driving that. And so a great book that I recommend to people is What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And that's by Marshall Goldsmith, who I hope I can achieve a fraction of his achievements. You know, he doesn't work with anybody for less than a million dollars. The guy is just a monster in terms of the coaching world. And in that book, there are 20 habits, which we all do, which get in the way of our success, which might have been helpful before, but examining our beliefs about a certain situation is sort of at the core of that concept. One of my favorite kind of mottos in life is strong opinions loosely held, right? Like nothing, there's no sacred cows, no, no view that, that can't be uprooted given, given new data. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you've got to educate us on something. We talked about this in the pre-call and I already forgot what the definition was, but I remembered I had never heard of it before, but you talk about the concept of wealth 3.0. Um, yeah. I wasn't aware we were past 2.0 and I don't even know what 2.0 is. So can you I explain that concept to us? Yeah. Yeah. I, so I didn't know what it was at least as a term to describe what I've been talking about with financial advisory businesses for more than 15 years. And to be very clear, the term is not mine. I didn't come up with this terminology. It's based on doctors, uh, James Grubman and Dennis Jaffe. And then they worked with a coach named Kristen Kefeller. So my interest in this idea of Wealth 3.0 is that it's in the alignment of the idea that financial services has evolved from stockbroker to asset allocator to wealth manager to whatever we want to call what we do today, what we do. And the progression is from more transactional work to more transformational work. Wealth 3.0 is really the shift from helping clients understand that money is a means to an end, not an end in itself. And what does money mean to your family? What are your guiding principles, the purpose and the choices? So an example of this is the guy that inherits $50 million from the sale of a family business. And this is actually an anecdote from one of my clients who asked me, hey, I, got, I have this client. What do I do with them? The client came to them and said, you know, my family business got sold. I don't have to ever work again. What do I do? I'm concerned about, I have young kids. I don't want my kids to see me lounging by the pool on a Tuesday morning. But now, now that I can do whatever I want, what do I want to do? And then furthermore, what are the values and uh, purpose that I want to provide to my family? So the difference between Wealth 2.0 and Wealth 3.0 is that Wealth 2.0 was based on anxiety and fear. 
fear that if we tell people about the wealth that we have and we don't hide it from them or keep it sort of locked up, then they're going to squander it. Well, 3.0 is more about possibility. It's about understanding that we can do lots of amazing things with this. Let's look at what opportunities this provides to us. So education, family planning, and these are things, again, that, that have trickled down from those truly ultra-wealthy families into what most advisors do today with financial planning and sort of trusts and estates and wills and education of the next generation and developing conversations with the next generation or even skip generations and teaching grandkids and, and young children about the value of money and how to invest. That's that's ultimately what Wealth 3.0 is about. It's about that positive outlook on what wealth can do for us and maybe for society as a whole. Another thing that we've talked about and around with with several guests, and you kind of have a, a unique take on it, um, it's referrals. You know, everyone's sort of solving for growth. Uh, right. And everyone you know, acquiesces that the easiest way to grow is get referrals from your existing client base. Okay, well, how do we go about doing that? So you talk about this um, – the need for a compel, and I'm quoting, a compelling catalyst. Yes. Um, what are we talking about there? So let's get something out of the way first before we even talk about referrals, right? Some people say out there, don't do it. Don't ask for referrals. They yes. should just come to you naturally. Two big camps. <laughs> right? And there are others that are positive. That is absolutely the best way to grow your business. And let me share with you, my perspective is they both have well-reasoned positions on why they're right. And I'm not here to say to somebody, you should absolutely ask for referrals. Now, for those that do want to ask for referrals, I think one of the challenges here and relates back to this idea of compelling catalysts is that there is a sea of sameness in this industry. I think that that presents an enormous opportunity for businesses to differentiate themselves. So that's the start of compelling catalyst. Why should somebody choose to become a client of yours? Or if you're building a team, why should they become an employee of yours? Right? I can work with anybody. So compelling catalyst has to answer that question. Why would somebody choose to work with me? Or why should I go and partner up with this particular financial services firm? And there's a lot of table stakes. We take care of our clients. We start with a integrated financial planning process. We serve the needs of divorcees. There are 50% of marriages end in divorce. That's not a niche. That's a tranche. That's a huge <laughs> portion of the population. I work with women. That's 50% of the population. That's not, that's not differentiating. So it's important to start with that concept. Now, Moving on to the referrals piece, I think that advisors that choose to ask for referrals, they struggle with actually getting it done for two primary reasons. The first one is, is they don't have a process that creates momentum for somebody to give you a referral. So let me talk about that a little bit. The first step in creating a process for referrals is who do you ask? And so I talk a lot about segmentation. I really help people start to understand who do I want to replicate? If I want to replicate the divorced women that are entrepreneurial business owners with uh, a business that has 10 million in revenue or less, that's more of a niche. Right. If I want to work with, uh, you've probably heard with, with dinks, right? Dual income, no kids, right? If I want to work with those people, how do I want to identify them in my book of business? Who are the people that I might want to replicate who have I currently helped, right? Who has currently given me referrals? These are all areas of segmentation. 
So that's step one is understanding who am I, who do I really want to grow my business with and how do I want to start identifying those people? The second step in creating a process is creating a moment of when you can ask. So building up that bucket of goodwill, building up that moment of when somebody feels really great about the work that you've done. Maybe that's after a a review. Maybe it's when you've solved a problem for them. Maybe it's when they've just, some people have said it's right after they onboard because right then they've made the decision. They feel good about making the decision. Why not start asking them right then? Hey, what are some of the reasons why you made this decision? What made you choose us over other people? And then how do you ask? So that's the third piece. So understanding who to ask, when do you do it, and having a process for that. And then how do you ask is the third piece. So this is around scripting. And I often talk about Jerry Seinfeld here because he's he's been on record in a lot of different interviews where he says, I write out all of my jokes. Yeah. I write them out I've on these yellow with, him with all the notepads, yeah. Yeah, with all the notepads, right? And he writes them down and he battle tests them and goes back and forth about where to add a pause or whether it's and or but. He's very, very specific about it. Kurt, where do you live? I'm in Atlanta. You're in Atlanta. If I come to Atlanta and I say, where's a good restaurant to eat? You're probably thinking of like a lot of restaurants, Yeah. right? What part of town? What time of day? Yep. Hey, I want to eat at a great red sauce Italian restaurant or a classic French white tablecloth restaurant, or I want the best burger in Atlanta. I've narrowed your focus. So this is the other piece of the puzzle is that when we ask generally for referrals, it doesn't land. I got to think. I know every, right? Like I, I know a lot of people that could give that, that might help you out, but be more specific with me. So being specific and the idea here is that how you ask comes down to that scripting and familiarity because it leads to the second point, which is anxiety. So this is the, the belief scenario that we were talking about before. And some of the beliefs that I've heard from advisors are, oh, my clients won't like it if I ask them for a referral. They feel like I'm, I'm asking them for something. Uh, I might look weak, like I need the business, and so that doesn't work. Or I don't like it. It feels icky to me. Like, I don't care if it feels icky to you. It feels icky to you because you you want predictability. So let's be predictable about the things that you can control. So build that process, run the process, and evaluate the process. And it all comes back to who do I want to grow my business with? What makes me unique? And what is the reason why somebody would choose to come and work with me? Those all fit into that compelling catalyst as it relates to this idea of asking for referrals. So we're going to have to do a part two with you. So can you commit to us that you could do part two? Because I do want to come in front of the person that just says, no, like I didn't like this at all. Like this is, (laughs) this is terrible. But really I have like so many follow-up questions and paths and we have questions we didn't get to and awesome insights. Let's sum up where people can find you. So my wet, yeah, and I appreciate that. The easiest way for people to get to my website is www.michaelfutterman.com. That's uh, and I'm sure that'll be published on the link to this. My URL is way too long. I still love the idea of type two fun consulting, uh, (laughs) but, but uh, the URL is too long for me to spell it out here. I would invite people to take a look at that on my website. There is a link there. If somebody wanted to have a complimentary uh, coaching session with me, 
that is one of my ways to show people what it's like to work with me. And I encourage people to sign up for that. And that's something that uh, I'm happy to do for your audience. And I want to tell the two of you guys, like, I really appreciate this. It's great to, uh, to talk with people like the two of you who are so passionate about what you're doing and to ask good questions. That's part of the reason why I think this went well is that you guys are good coaches. You asked good questions to get me thinking about how do I, how do I explain this to the audience? Thank you, Michael. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Speaking of Jerry Seinfeld, we're going to transition to our Costanza Corner. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. And welcome back to our Costanza Corner, where we want to leave on a high note. And Kurt, as we sit here at the end of 2023, as you all listen, the beginning of 2024, I think I think you have a message for the folks that I agree with. Well, I'm just, I'm looking at our calendar and this is going to be the 69th episode that we've done. This is two and a half years. So the Costanza Corner is is just thank you for another year of listening, putting up with us, uh, submitting ideas, participating. The show exists for you and it wouldn't exist without you. So thanks for your participation and being part of this community. Yeah, totally agree. Love the notes you send. We see the stats and... Uh... Man, people are listening to this thing, and it, what a great joy it is for us to be a part of of building that, and uh, you know, building the community and just be involved. This is just such a cool ride we're on. So, uh, with that, let's uh, let's kick some butt in twenty twenty four. What do you think? Anyone listening? Let's you know, it's time. Get motivated. Set a goal. Let's let's take a big step forward. That's my message. Let's do it. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. See y'all. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. Touchstone and Type 2 Fund Consulting are unaffiliated. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC. This commentary is for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The prospectus and the summary prospectus contain this and other information about the fund. To obtain a prospectus or a summary prospectus, contact your financial professional or download and or request one at touchstoneinvestments.com resources or call Touchstone at 800-638-8194. Please read the prospectus and or summary prospectus carefully before investing.